Good morning. It would be great to keep your Bible open. Just as a practice, if you're new amongst us, the way I tend to do it is if I'm referring to a verse that we've just read, uh, I'll point people to the passage itself uh, in, in the Bible in front of you. If I'm referring to a passage that's somewhere else in the Bible, uh, then I'll tend to put it on the screen. Uh, and the reason I do that just saves some, some flicking time uh, for people. By the time when you get there, I probably would have moved on. So, uh, so that's sort of uh, the practice of how it works as I speak, if that's helpful. Let me pray, and then let's spend some time in God's Word. Dear Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, that we might recognize the lordship of your son, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you could choose between watching someone be miraculously healed or watching someone become a Christian, which one would you choose? At very least, you'd be tempted to go with the healing. Uh, And it would certainly appease any of those lingering struggles that you might have with doubt. And we certainly know that that person's life would be so much better if they didn't have to continue living day after day with the burden of their illness and disability. Uh, let me approach the question, same question, a slightly different way. Uh, if, as a parent, you had to choose between the health and happiness of your child and your child being a Christian, which one would you choose? Because our answer says a lot about what we believe and where we place our hope and what we perceive to be our greatest need. And I appreciate for many parents here that that is a difficult question. Uh, There are many people here who would long for their children to know Christ, uh, but you also recognise that at this time they don't. And we take hope that it ain't over till it's over, and we keep praying for our kids, uh, and we keep praying that the Lord will be gracious. But the passage we read today, it starts with this uh, pure, feel-good account of this man being healed. Uh, But if we just stay there, if that's where we focus our attention, if that's what captivates us, then we've really missed half the story. Uh, So for those who have missed the plot so far, or if you need a little bit of a refresher, then here's where we're up to so far in the book of Acts. So in Acts 1, uh, Jesus lays out his plan for his disciples once he's gone. And so in verse 8, he says, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And last week we saw the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. So the Holy Spirit comes down on this small community of Christians and the apostles stand up in front of all the crowds and proclaim the wonders of God. And in one day, 3,000 people turn to Christ. Uh, Incredible day. 
Uh, And as a result, uh, the Christians who lived in Jerusalem started gathering together. So they'd meet together in the temple's courts and they'd uh, share life together in their homes and they'd encourage one another and, and grow in their knowledge and faith of Jesus. And as the author of Acts, uh, Luke, uh, describes this new community, uh, there's this one relatively nondescript line from last week. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And so today we're going to look at one of those wonders and signs. And it starts with our crippled man. So for this crippled man, uh, his day would have started like every other single day of his life where he gets carried up to the the gates of the temple uh, where he's put down and he spends the day begging. Uh, There's not a lot of dignity in begging, is there? But for a man who has no other options, every day he is literally begging for his survival. That he might have enough money and enough food to go for another day. And for Peter and John, well, they're just heading up to the temple because that's what they do every afternoon. And so as they come past this bloke and, and he you know, calls out to them, you know, Peter and John then stop and they, they get this bloke's attention. Uh, and you can imagine if you're the beggar, you're, you're a little bit hopeful that you know, out of all the people you've been you know, sort of calling out to today, you know, here's a, a moment, an opportunity. And, Jesus, and then uh, Peter then starts with these words, silver or gold I do not have. You can imagine the bloke being a little disappointed at that point and thinking, well, I don't need silver and gold, I'll take copper. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be fussy here, I'll take whatever's on offer. Uh, but instead, Peter says, in the name of Jesus, walk. And then they help him to his feet and his life changes forever, doesn't it? You know, can you imagine, you know, you're walking down the street and you, you realise you've, you've got no money for a train fare. So you walk up to someone and you say, look, you know, can I come a couple of bucks for the train? And the guy goes, look, you know, sorry, mate, I, I, I've got no cash. Uh, but you know what? Here, just have my car. You know, this is that BMW over there. It's filled up. She'll be right. You know, if you, that whole situation in real life is, is really completely inconceivable, isn't it? But even if it did happen... You know, it would pale in comparison to this moment for this bloke. Uh, this hasn't just sort of helped a you know, momentary physical need. This would have transformed his complete life. And so he goes from being crippled to being helped up to walking and leaping and praising God. And actually, it's the praising God that's the most exciting part of this passage. You know, so we should take pleasure in what's happened, but more significantly, we should pay attention to how it's happened because that has direct implications for us. So I think for me, the account gets really interesting, uh, not so much in the healing, but when Peter gets up to speak. And the first thing he does is he points people to not Jesus. So verse 12, fellow Israelites... Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. 
So Peter starts with what they know best. He points them back to the God of the Old Testament who they know, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And in this context, Peter is referring to God the Father. And it's worth taking a moment, and we'll take a little bit of an extended moment, to just sort of talk about the nature of God. Uh, Because it's complicated, but it's significant for understanding what's going on here. And in particular, the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So in Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so it's speaking to the unity of God, but it doesn't give us a complete picture about the nature of God. Because in other parts of the Old Testament, we have God talked about in the plural. So, for example, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, plural. Isaiah 6.8, then I heard the voice of the Lord say, whom shall I send and whom and who will go for us? Uh, we also have some specific references. So, for example, 1 Samuel 16. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then this particularly enigmatic uh, verse from Psalm 110, where David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in fact, Peter quoted the same psalm last week. So we've got two lords, and one of those lords is giving authority to the other lord. And it only makes sense when we see it in the context of Jesus. And this is important because Jesus isn't just given the title lord. He's not like King David in the Old Testament, who's given the title of son. He's the eternal son, who was with the Father in the beginning, and he's confirmed here as Lord and Messiah by the events of the resurrection and the ascension, and now his power. So God is one, and yet God is also three. So each person is distinct from the other. Each has a unique role, but relationally completely unified. And they don't just function perfectly together, they function interdependently. So the Son receives the Spirit from the Father, and Jesus is led by the Spirit. And on at least one occasion, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Jesus. So in this passage, what we have is God the Father endorsing God the Son. So if you're trying to work out, you know, who do you trust in a situation? Or should I trust this person I've just met? Then usually the first thing we do is go back to someone we do trust for answers. And really that's what Peter has done here. He's gone back to what they know to then teach them about who Jesus really is. And he sets up these two contrasting reactions to Jesus. So verse 13 He's speaking to the crowd and he says, you handed him over to be killed. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. That's a pretty personal and damning assessment of their guilt. 
But in contrast, this is how God speaks of Jesus. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. Verse 13, verse 15, but God raised him from the dead. So the father endorses the son and that endorsement is confirmed by the power of Jesus. So verse 16, it's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. Notice there that it's the faith that comes through Jesus. So it's not the power of this man's faith or the volume of his faith. In that particular moment in time, he's just sitting there on the side of the road begging for all he can. It's the faith that Jesus gives him that convicts him of what is true. And the power displayed in the name of Jesus confirms Jesus as the holy and righteous one. So holy and righteous speaks to his role. The son is set apart by God, by the father, for the sake of humanity. It speaks to his perfection and his capacity to stand in our place, the perfect and righteous son for the unrighteous. And it also speaks to his rule and his authority and power. So in the words of Isaiah 32, see a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. And it's all pointing people, it's pointing this crowd to all the events of the Old Testament. So verse 18, but this is how God fulfills what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Now we don't know if Peter had a particular verse in mind when he's talking about suffering, but certainly Isaiah 53 would be a good one. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquity. So Jesus is the holy and righteous one and he is the author of life. And as we look at this whole passage, we see that description kind of works on lots of different levels. But at the heart of it, it's about restoration. So for this crippled man who's been begging his whole life at the temple gates, life is about being restored physically. His healing is literally a reversal of the brokenness of his world. But it's also the moment of his salvation, where he's restored spiritually. And Jesus offers to restore anyone who repents. That's the promise that is open to everyone who hears these words. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. I think lately uh, in the news, there's been a lot of singling out of sinners. And at the same time, outrage about how Christians could be so cruel as to suggest that any natural behaviour might be wrong before God. The truth is, we are all sinners. And we all have natural behaviours that are wrong before God. Some of our sins are more dramatic than others. Uh, Some have more profound consequences. But ultimately, they're all symptoms of a greater underlying problem. And that is that we reject God. 
So God isn't simply calling us to improve our values or change our behaviour. He is calling us to recognise his rightful authority. And when we do, when we repent and turn to God, we avoid the consequences of our rejection and we benefit with life. And that has implications in the present as well as the future. Because when we repent, it promises that a time of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, it's not may as in it might happen perhaps, but may as in this will happen. It's almost English, isn't it? Kind of understated. But it is now possible and it will happen. You know, when I think about refreshing, and perhaps in your own mind, you know, what's, a, what's a moment of refreshing? For me, uh, it's, it's diving underwater uh, on a hot day. You know, just that, that feeling of, of complete release. You know, and that, that moment of, of escapism. You know, until, of course, I've got to come up because I need oxygen. Uh, but, you know, when we think about refreshing, uh, it's, it's not just simply about escapism. Uh, it's about, you know, recognising who we are, having clarity about who we are, as we live in a complex world. And as we recognise who we are before God, then with that comes peace. So Jesus once said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you to, to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. You know, we love life, uh, but so often life is very messed up. And it seems on a society level that the further we travel away from God's good order for things, the more we need to compensate for the consequences. And we say life is more complicated, uh, and I think it is. Uh, but I think, to be fair, what we should really be saying is, collectively, we have made life more complicated. And as Christians, we will still feel the weightiness of this life. But in the present, God still offers refreshing. We'll still struggle with things like anxiety and depression. We'll still struggle with feelings that we hate, like envy and jealousy and greed and anger and lust. We will still struggle with broken and increasingly creaky bodies. The young'uns don't know it's coming yet, <laughs> but it is. I went and did park run yesterday. I don't really run. It was quite painful. <laughs> but we face all of these things as Christians from a different starting point. So we know that we have God's word and God's word shows us a better way to live and a better way to relate with other people, a way that's characterised by grace and compassion and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We know we have God's spirit who is shaping and moulding us to be more like Christ and towards being imitators of Christ. We know that we have God's people for love and support. You know, as a young bloke uh, growing up uh, in a single parent family, uh, one thing I'm very thankful for as I look back is seeing how there were other significant males in my life, you know, through our church community, you know, who took an interest in me 
uh, personally, but also in my faith. Uh, they're guys who spoke to me. Uh, they're guys who sometimes rebuked me. Uh, they're certainly guys who prayed for me. Uh, and that's an enormous blessing uh, that we have with one another, uh, that we can build one another up. And as we experience all of that refreshing, there are lots of good things. It's not perfect. But as we experience those good things, we do also long for more, don't we? You know, if, if this is life with Christ in still a broken world, imagine what it will look like in the future, life with Christ with no more brokenness. And that's our future hope. So verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And again, Peter points the people to the scriptures and he shows them how the great patriarchs of their faith and the prophets were all looking forward to the future. And the blessing that was promised way back in the beginning of Genesis, right back in Genesis 12, is now coming to be fulfilled through Christ. So verse 25, he said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. It's Jesus who gave the crippled man the faith and healed him. And it's Jesus who turns each person from their wicked ways. You know, so as we look at this whole passage, we see sort of both the mercy of God and at the same time, personal responsibility. So Jesus opens their eyes to see the truth. And it's Jesus who compels us to respond to that truth by repenting and putting our faith in him. But from our perspective, we still need to act. We still have a responsibility to recognise God, to repent, turn back and live in submission and obedience to him. And for many of you this morning, that's exactly what you have done. Uh, you are living, not, not perfectly, but you are living for Christ earnestly. Uh, for others here this morning, perhaps uh, that's something that has been around you for a long time. You, you've heard the message. You, you, know, you know, if I say, what's the gospel, you, you know the, the basics. Uh, but you haven't actually committed to it. Uh, can I encourage you not to sit on the fence, partly because the fence doesn't actually exist, uh, but, but make a choice. Uh, where do you stand before God? Because the message of this passage to these people is repent and be saved. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, that can make our life a lot easier, aren't there? You know, we, we do love health. Uh, we do want to be happy. But our greatest need is actually to recognise that Jesus is the author of life. And there are lots of ways that we as a community of Christians can love and support our broader Shell Harbour community. Uh, we can love them in, in practical ways. We can love them uh, emotionally. We can look after practical needs. And all of those things are good things to do. But actually, the greatest way that we can love them and their greatest need is to know Christ. You know, if we support them practically, uh, then we can help them with their real needs now. But if we point them to Christ, we can help 
with their real needs now and for eternity. And that's even better. Amen.